it's Friday the 1st of March and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang President Yoon said South Korea and Japan are working to overcome their painful past and move towards a new world in a speech marking March 1st Independence Movement Day. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. For weekly economy review, we look at the government's plan to ease greenbelt regulations to help boost regional economic growth. In lieu of Global News Roundup today, we'll also be delving into the government's corporate value-up programme to tackle the career discount afflicting local stocks. And coming up for Movie Spotlight, we review the box office hit chiller X-Humor and Dune Part 2. Let's begin Career 24. Today marks March 1st Independence Movement Day, or Samiljal in Korean. 105 years ago, the Korean public bravely took to the streets to call for Korea's independence from Japan's colonial rule. An event commemorating the day was held at the Memorial Hall of Yugansun in central Seoul today. Some 1,200 people, including patriots, bereaved families of independence fighters, diplomats and students, attended the event. And what you're hearing now is the sound of orders of merit being awarded to individuals for contributions to Korea's liberation. They include five descendants of heroes who fought for that cause, including Yam Dong-un for the later Yun Sang-hyung, a freedom fighter during the Japanese colonial era. For more on this event and the rest of the day's headlines, we have joining us in the studio now our KBS World Radio News Editor, Koo Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang so President Yoon sung yeol attended the event and he gave a speech where he said South Korea and Japan are now working together to overcome their painful past and moving towards a new world. Can you tell us more about what the president said? Well, in his speech, President Yoon said the two nations are working together based on mutual understanding and empathy as stated under the 1919 Proclamation of Korean Independence. Yoon said the proclamation made it clear to Japan that independence would be a path to prosperity for both countries. The president assessed that by sharing the values of freedom, human rights and the rule of law, Seoul and Tokyo have become partners in the pursuit of common interests for uh, global peace and prosperity. He said security cooperation between the two countries against North Korea's nuclear and missile threats has further strengthened, anticipating next year's 60th anniversary of normalization in bilateral uh, diplomatic ties will further advance their relations. The Yun Song Yal administration also announced plans to put forth a new unification vision that carries the value of liberal democracy. Can you tell us more? Well, according to a senior presidential official on a Friday, the administration is seeking to further define its views and vision for unification, adding the existing Korean national community unification formula lacks the philosophical vision of liberal democracy pursued by the current administration. The updates will mark the first time the national community unification formula, the nation's unification policy unveiled in August 1994 under the administration of late President Kim Yong-sam is revised. The official said it would would be appropriate and justifiable to revise the policy to include a vision to achieve liberal uh, democratic unification and bring freedom and prosperity to the North Korean people. The official said the vision and philosophical content regarding the vastly different outcomes for the two Koreans 
Korea's during the 70-year history of the division of the Korean Peninsula will be also be conceptualized for policy development. Meanwhile, during his speech Friday, President Yoon strongly criticized North Korea for designating South Korea as a primary foe and principal enemy. What else did he say? Well, during his remarks at the commemorative event, Yoon slammed North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's hostile designations, saying unification is what is needed to expand the universal values of freedom and human rights. Yoon added that the North Korean regime's tyranny and human rights abuses deny the universal values of humanity, stressing that the nation's independence movement will be only made complete upon a unification that brings freedom and abundance to everyone. The president said Seoul's unification efforts Uh, must become a source of hope and beacon of light for the North Korean people. Referring to the designation of July 14th as North Korean Defectors Day starting this year, Yun pledged to continue efforts to improve North Korean human rights and to provide North Korean defectors with a warm-hearted support. Now, over in Washington, senior South Korean and U.S. officials expressed deep concerns over North Korea's designation of the two Koreas as hostile states and the regime's potential unilateral attempts to change the status quo along the Yellow Sea. Can you elaborate? Well, according to Seoul's foreign ministry on a Friday, Foreign Minister Cho Tae-yeol, who is on a visit to the U.S., shared such mutual views following a meeting with U.S. Deputy uh, Secretary of State Kurt Campbell in Washington, assessing that the allies are responding to the North's threats and provocation under a complete solidarity. The officials agreed to actively coordinate policies to deter any type of provocations by Pyongyang. Cho requested that Campbell play an active role as he previously served as the White House National Security Council's deputy assistant to the president and coordinator for Indo-Pacific affairs in further developing the alliance and trilateral cooperation with Japan. Let's turn to other headlines now. Police raided offices of former and incumbent executives at the Korean Medical Association accused of violating the Medical Services Act. This is, of course, related to the trainee doctors' collective action in protest of a planned increase in medical school admissions quota. What's the latest? Well, the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency on Friday began the raid at the offices of the KMA's Emergency Steering Committee, um, the Seoul Medical Association and the Kangwondo Medical Association to obtain evidence such as uh, mobile phones and personal computers. Earlier, the health ministry filed a complaint with the police against five people, including KMA interim leader Kim Tegu and former KMA chief Noor Hwangyu on charges of uh, violating the act. Obstruction of business, instigation and abetting. Uh, setting Thursday as the deadline for doctors to return to work, the government had warned those uh, violating the return to work order would face licence uh, suspension and legal procedures. And with the deadline passed, the health ministry served the government's return to work order to some trainee doctors taking collective action via a public notice on its official website. Well, the notice uh, dated Friday says, while the order under Act 59 Clause 2 of the Medical Services Act must be delivered in person or via mail to medical personnel who have suspended duties without justification, some could not be delivered due to absence or unverified addresses. The notice uh, urged doctors to, uh, who have received the order to promptly return to work amid concerns that their collective action could lead to massive disruption in public health and life. 
lives. It warned that violators could face legal consequences, uh, including a criminal investigation. Those subject to uh, public notices are 13 trainee doctors affiliated with 12 hospitals, including Seoul National University Hospital, uh, Severance Hospital and Samsung Medical Centre. That's where we're going to wrap up our news briefing today. Hee thank you for those updates. Thank you. Hi, I'm professional golfer Tan Kim. You're now listening to Korea 24 on ABS World Radio. administration announced last week that it will ease green belt regulations for the first time in 53 years. Introduced in 1971, green belts referred to development restricted areas for environmental conservation. The decision was announced after a meeting presided over by President Yun, the Office for Government Policy Coordination, the Ministry of Land, Infrastructure and Transport and the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. The move is aimed at boosting regional economic growth, which the government said is hindered due to outdated land regulations. To look closer at these plans for this week's weekly economy review, we have joining us in the studio economics professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Professor Yang, hello. Hello. So, can you first tell us about the Green Belt deregulation? I know it has a long history. Uh, so there's lots to cover. Okay, well, uh, let's start with the uh, sort of history of Greenbelt first. Okay. Uh, Greenbelt, uh, the concept originated in London. They actually had the idea apparently back in 1593, uh, and that was <laughs> okay. to protect the country from having contagious diseases. Uh, but the uh, more modern uh, concept of Greenbelt, which is maintaining checks on the growth of the city, allow agriculture to stay close to city limits, and provide environmental protection for the city, as well as letting the uh, city population enjoy areas where nature is still fairly natural. Uh, th- that concept began in 1938. Uh, and uh, if you look at the city of London, the Greenbelt in London, you have London in the middle, then the Greenbelt surrounding the city completely. And uh, apparently uh, the uh, government buys the land that it uses as Greenbelt. Uh, so in a sense, I guess you could call it, even call it sort of a national park. Mm. Uh, now, Greenbelt in Korea is a bit different. Uh, the Greenbelt in Korea, the land remains under private ownership, but the development is 
very much restricted. Uh, so green belts in Korea are basically zoning laws. Uh, there's no industrial commercial businesses that can set up in the uh, green belts. Green belt can be used for agricultural purposes and some leisure services. Uh, but if you say it try to establish restaurants there, that will usually not be allowed. Uh, now, green belts in Korea were first set up by President Park Jong-hee in 17, uh, 1971. And originally, they were set at the outskirts of the city, though it didn't ring around completely around the city like uh, London did. But they did take a lot of uh, land here and there to act as green belts. Uh, but as Seoul expanded and other cities expanded, a lot of those green belts uh, became uh, smack dab in the middle of the uh, city as it is now. Okay. And... Uh, because no commercial and industrial developments are allowed, and even agricultural developments are strictly regulated, these areas sometimes resemble not parks or ideally uh, green areas, but broken down farmland, uh, not maintained or appreciated. So sometimes if you go to, say, uh, some areas of the city, maybe not in the direct center of the city, but somewhat in the, still in the city limits, but somewhat in the outskirts, then you see these green belts. Whenever it rains, it becomes very muddy and so on, Mm. uh, because there's no incentive to really uh, take care of the land. Right, I see. So uh, in some cases, Greenbelt owners set up illegal businesses like uh, restaurants or nature uh, walks to try to recover some value from the land. And uh, sometimes they ignore the law doing it. Sometimes it generates pollution uh, that the uh, Greenbelts are supposed to prohibit in the first place. Uh, Meanwhile, the value of the areas surrounding the Greenbelts soar in value because, well, land is very scarce in a lot of these metropolitan areas. Uh, Seoul being the worst, uh, but the green belt, uh, which is sometimes just two or three minutes away by walking, right. the uh, land prices has dropped tremendously because, well, you can't develop this land. Right. Uh, so in uh, uh, Seoul metropolitan areas and some other major cities, green belts are often one of the very little uh, open ground uh, where uh, you have room to develop, room to put new facilities in, but you can't do that because of the green belt zoning laws. So, and then green belts in Korea have been controversial for decades. Uh, environmentalists like it because it uh, limits a uh, pr- uh, lot of uh, urban development. Of course, uh, it uh, clears up the air. Uh, it gives environmental benefits to uh, the city. Uh, but because green belts are prior Privately owned, there's a lot of question on whether government is restricting the property rights of the owners uh, too much. Mm. And that's uh, been a problem for uh, nearly a decade now, more than a decade, excuse me. And uh, the problem is uh, people want to uh, put in new factories, new commercial areas in large cities, and there's no place to put them anymore because every inch of uh, the city grounds have been developed. Uh, And that's especially true for Seoul metropolitan areas. So there has been conflict between environmentally oriented groups and development oriented groups around green belts uh, for decades. And while uh, development oriented groups claim that some of the green belt now is the land with the most potential for future development as housing centers or commercial and industrial centers. Environmentalists point out that if you uh, get rid of these green belt, then urban 
uh, areas will become completely concrete. Right. Uh, which will make the cities more miserable. It'll be more difficult to control temperatures and air quality and so on. Uh, so uh, the, currently the uh, measures proposed by the UN administration would uh, re- allow rezoning of these green belts outside the Seoul area. So Seoul metropolitan area, even though that is probably the worst uh, case of green belt uh, restricting development, they will be excluded from these measures. And even the uh, prime environmentally protected land, so so-called first and second class land, uh, they will be able to use that for development if developers can make a case that uh, this will be a good place for development. Okay, so but it's as you said, it's outside of Seoul metropolitan area. So Seoul metropolitan area is not, not covered. Okay, and at least according to the law, uh, the total area of green belt must remain the same. So if some of the area, uh, green belts are used for development, then equivalent uh, area of land must be made into a green belt, hmm. uh, and that's probably going to have some problems with the uh, owners of this potential uh, land uh, that can be turned into a green belt. Of course. Uh, uh, and uh, so uh, the government has pledged that the uh, total area of green belts would not change, uh, but uh, how they're going to obtain this land, how they're going to compensate uh, the uh, landowners whose rights may be reduced, they're, it's, they're not clear on that. And some people, the current, some of the uh, current green belt landowners are going to get a windfall. Uh, now, uh, so this will be a problem at green belts. Um, I just want to point out the one interesting uh, deregulation measure that has little to do with green belts, but perhaps points out how outdated some of these uh, land regulations are. Uh, they finally let uh, farmers establish multi-stage, multi-stage uh, farming facilities hmm. that can be used for so-called smart farming, which is one of the uh, biggest areas for agricultural development right now. What we mean by multi-stage farming is that you have uh, multiple floors okay. uh, where you can uh, farm uh, different produce on each floor. Uh, but this has not been allowed currently. You cannot do, you do that in current land classified as agricultural, including green belts, I believe. Uh, and that's uh, really waste of resources. And they finally got rid of that regulation. Right. So it's controversial, but it's also outdated. And so perhaps there is uh, some suggestion about need for reforms. And so the Union administration is looking to introduce some deregulation measures to help boost the local and regional economies. What are the, what's the thinking behind that? Will it be able to uh, help boost uh, local regional economies? Okay, I think it'll be helpful but limited. And the reason I uh, say that is that, first of all, this will be most helpful in metropolitan areas uh, because, well, we talked about this before, not only in Seoul but in other metropolitan areas, you often see uh, developers reluctant to invest because there's no empty land, uh, especially if you're setting up, say, large industrial clusters. If you're setting up large industrial commercial clusters, you want to have a lot of people nearby, both as laborers and possibly as customers. Uh, But uh, if all the land around, uh, in the city is taken up, then there's really no place to put a large cluster in, a uh, large industrial complex in, unless you free up some of this uh, green belt. Uh, now, having said that, uh, the uh, 
Seoul is taking such a big part of Korea's regional economy because it's a so-called mega city. They have such a wide variety of industries, wide varieties of jobs available, and wide variety of uh, conveniences available that people gravitate toward the mega cities. And the uh, regional cities, if they want to survive, they're probably going to have to specialize in one or two industries. Uh, so uh, freeing up the green belt, they will probably help uh, cities attract some of these uh, firms in certain industries that they're going to specialize in. But whether they'll uh, bring in other types of businesses, I think that's doubtful. So it'll help uh, the regional economy by creating some jobs. Uh, it'll help them specialize uh, perhaps more. Uh, so it'll be helpful overall. Uh, but there's a limit to growth when you specialize. Uh, so if you want to specialize your city as uh, being producer of, say, uh, agricultural goods uh, or uh, perhaps automobiles, well, you'll attract a lot of automobile makers, but you'll not necessarily attract a lot of finance people. Uh, so I think it'll be helpful, but uh, the uh, effect will be limited, but it'll be welcome, never the same. Right. Part of the appeal is that this could lead to balanced regional development of uh, the country, growth and economic projects where they're focused in Seoul. And we want more in regionals as well. That's what the government is looking for, right? Won't it help with that, at least? It will help create more jobs. It will probably help create uh, increase per capita income in those areas. But if you're looking for these cities to become perhaps another Seoul, that's not likely. Some critics have said that this announcement uh, comes ahead of the April 10th general elections and it's a bid to woo voters in some of these regional districts and uh, businesses in these regional districts. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, I mean, people have been uh, being angry about uh, green belts for years, especially uh, developers, investors, as well as landowners. Uh, so uh, I think this was a politically oriented move. But just because it's a politically oriented move does not necessarily mean it's a bad move. OK, what about uh, real estate speculation? in local areas as well. As you said, these green belts uh, covered lands, this, it's, there's a lot of potential uh, value there, especially in some of these uh, more metropolitan areas. Yeah, so uh, we will definitely have speculation, but let's see why they have the speculation, because their prices have been uh, too low for the uh, last couple of decades because the price, uh, because development has been controlled. So now control has been potentially removed. Uh, that means uh, you're going to have to find the correct price, but on the way to going to the correct price, you know, price, uh, unlike, say, textbooks, it doesn't adjust from one equilibrium to another equilibrium cleanly. So we are going to see a lot of speculation uh, is in the process of that piece of land finding its correct price. So at least for a year or two, expect a lot of speculation on land that opens up. But you also have to remember, you, uh, Greenbelt is, uh, you, land doesn't exclude itself from becoming a green uh, from the uh, green belt regulations unless somebody wants it uh, so if nobody wants that piece of land uh, then I don't think they're going to have speculation it's only going to be land that people some developer want uh, that you're going to see speculation in 
you also mentioned about environmentalists earlier as well, how they obviously uh, like to keep uh, uh, the uh, green belt as it is. Critics say that the move against environmental environmental protection policies goes against the spirit of uh, carbon reduction campaigns, which the government is also committed to. What's your take on that? What's the potential cost coming from the environmental damage that the deregulation might bring? Is there some sort of cost-benefit uh, analysis there? Uh, there is no formal cost-benefit analysis yet, uh, which is another reason why this move is more political, I think, than economic or uh, social. Uh, but having said that, at least uh, at the current state of technology, you can't really have development without producing more carbon emissions. Uh, so... If this green belt policy is really successful and this area does become developed, it will generate perhaps more pollution. It will generate uh, more uh, carbon emissions. I think, given the current state of technology, that's uh, not that's unavoidable. That's why you see a lot of environmental uh, advocates arguing for uh, what they call degrowth. Let's stop growing uh, and reduce carbon emissions. Uh, But I think the solution to that is complementary policy. Uh, So we know that uh, freeing up green belts for development can potentially produce more uh, carbon emissions. So conversely, let's uh, move stronger into alternate fuels, uh, wind energy, solar energy, even nuclear energy, uh, so that we can reduce uh, carbon emissions that way. Uh, If uh, you limit uh, the uh, uh, freeing of the green belt uh, by not allowing green belt to be used for other purposes, uh, then your, the uh, regional economy will probably still be stuck in a moribund uh, state okay. and per capita GDP will not rise. But if you have these complementary policies, then you have uh, the potential not only for improving the environment, but also uh, developing and raising per, uh, regional uh, production and wealth. And finally, what are the chances the government will be able to uh, put this uh, reform in play? Because, as you said, there's a lot of controversial elements to this. Uh, there's What hurdles that remain? Uh, well, first hurdle is uh, you're going to have to pass it through the uh, regional governments uh, and National Assembly. I think that will depend on the National Assembly elections that we're going to have in April. Uh, But second, uh, one potential problem is that even if we're uh, freeing up the uh, land for green belts, uh, at least in the short term, there might not be that much of a demand. And the reason for that is twofold. First is that this year, Korea's uh, demand for uh, products uh, seemed to be muted. And so uh, there might be not Uh, not a lot of incentive for investment by companies. And then secondly, even though we're getting rid of Greenbelt regulations, a lot of other regulations are still going to remain. Uh, So it may still be uh, very difficult to build factories, even though you are now allowed to build in this uh, Greenbelt land uh, because of other regulations, uh, you might be uh, unable to build at least uh, not quickly. Okay, we'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to Professor Yang Jun-suk from the Catholic University of Korea. Thank you, as always, for your analysis. Thank you.
Did you know that Korea 24 is active on social media? You can do more than just listen to Korea 24. You can find out what the team has been up to on Korea 24's social media accounts. We are on Instagram on KBS underscore Korea 24, where we post about our weekly segments from Monday's sports segment to Friday's movie spotlight. Sometimes we share snippets of the team's day behind the scenes so you can get to know us better. On YouTube, we upload filmed versions of our segments, and you can also check out what other language services have been up to. Find us on at KBS World Radio Service. Make the most of your Korea 24 experience by following us on social media. Earlier this week, the government announced details of its Corporate Value Up program, offering tax incentives to enhance the value of domestic companies and address their undervaluation on the stock market, a phenomenon often referred to as the career discount. The Financial Services Commission said under the program, listed companies are advised to set their own stock price increase targets and come up with detailed plans on how and when they will achieve them, while the government supports these efforts with tax benefits. To discuss the Corporate Value Up programme, we have joining us on the line today, Yi Yu-gyung, Asia Stocks Reporter for Bloomberg. Ms Yi, hello and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me today. Before we delve into the programme, can you first uh, tell us about the so-called Korea discount afflicting Korean stocks? What is it exactly and how badly are Korean stocks undervalued because of it? Sure. So what is Korea discount? Um, For those of us familiar with South Korean stock markets, Korea discount is not a new phenomenon. It refers to this decade-long phenomenon where South Korean stocks are still undervalued compared with their peers in Taiwan or Japan, despite their earnings growth potential or global reputation of the world-class companies. So long-time investors in South Korea say there are several reasons behind the Korea discount. One of them is geopolitical risk in the Korean Peninsula, where tensions with North Korea uh, makes investors reluctant to give premium to Korean stocks. But there are other more domestic cooperative reasons, and that includes the huge influence of the powerful founding families behind many of South Korean companies called Tebal. And if you look at Samsung and Hyundai Motors, these family, even though they have, um, they have a founding families uh, who have just a tiny stake in these world-class companies, and they're still able to exercise a huge power thanks to this very complicated corporate structure called uh, cross-shareholdings. And that makes these companies' uh, corporate governance structure very much less transparent and less straightforward to outside investors. And unfortunately, the interest of these founding families don't necessarily align with the interests of other minority shareholders, and that's one of the key reasons behind Korea Discount. So if you are minority shareholders outside of founding families, your interests can get easily ignored and even mistreated by the controlling shareholders. And um, you might ask, why is that? And because that's interest of those, that's because the interests of those founding families are often in keeping the share prices artificially low uh, w- so that they can pass down the wealth and the management rights to their successors without paying heavy inheritance tax. 
And you have to note that South Korea does have one of the highest inheritance tax rates in the world. And with a surcharge to the listed companies, the inheritance tax can go up to 60%, which is more than half of your wealth. So there is an incentive to these powerful type of families to keep the share prices artificially low, which is something that other shareholders will not be happy about. And how badly are Korean stocks undervalued because of the Korean discount? Um, there are several measures to look at. One is comparing a company's market capital to the company's book value. This is called price-to-book ratio. And if a company's PBR is lower than one, it means that your market capital, the sum of the prices of all outstanding shares, is not even worth the sum of the assets on the balance sheet. And if you look at the COSPI in aggregate, the COSPI's market value has been persistently smaller than the book value of the assets of the COSPI company. So it has lower than one PBR. And that is unlike Taiwan or Japan, where the stock benchmark index is higher than its book value. Right. So all of these reasons means that... uh... Korean stocks seem to be undervalued more than in other countries. It seems to be a situation unique to Korea. And so the Yoon administration has long said that it will try to address this issue of the Korea discount. And one of the ways has been this corporate value-up program, the details of which were announced on Monday. Can you summarise for us what the corporate value-up program is and what was announced? Sure. So the corporate value program is one of the many steps that the current South Korean administration is introducing to resolve the credit discount. And while other measures are aimed at systematic improvements or revising the law or making administrative changes, this corporate value program is more directly aimed at changing behaviors of the company's management and the board of directors. So the program is going to ask the board of directors to come up with details on at least four areas starting in July. And that includes, first, assessing the current status of the company's business structure, profit, profitability, growth potential, shareholder returns, and other investment indicators, as well as corporate governance. And secondly, setting a mid- to long-term goal beyond at least three years where the company wants to be in terms of their corporate governance and shareholder returns. And thirdly, then update the implementation details, how they plan to execute in order to meet the goals they have set, and lastly, assess their execution. So Korea Exchange will come up with the final guidelines, which will serve as a template for the companies for the disclosure of these plans sometime in June. And some of the important features in the value program is that it is completely voluntary for the companies to participate. And there will be no penalties for the companies for not participating in the value up program. So the companies that are ready to disclose their plans and execute can do so starting in July. So this was one of the uh, features that the SSE said it plans to give a lot of incentives such as tax benefits to encourage companies to come up with self-improvement plans, but they said there will be no explicit penalty, which is slightly different from what Japan has done. Mm. Right, so the key question is, will it be effective? The FSC has acknowledged uh, the similarities in its program with that of Japan's, and that has been widely seen as a success, with uh, Tokyo markets hitting record highs for the first time in 34 years. Do you think South Korea's government-led program will be effective? And if so, how much is it going to revitalise the Korean stock markets? 
Sure. So um, as a journalist, I'm not in a position to share my personal opinion about the effectiveness of any policies. But people I've spoken to, some people in the investment community have shared concerns about the program's effectiveness as it lacks concrete details and enforcement measures. Um, and others appear to be waiting for more concrete details from the current exchange that will be released in June, as this is a work in progress. And they have also noted that any changes may not happen overnight. And if you look at Japan, uh, as you just mentioned, corporate reforms there took almost a decade before Tokyo Stock Exchange added a title list last year with, their, with its own initiative. So in South Korea, there have been so much anticipation for corporate reforms, uh, just like we've seen in Japan. But investors now seem to realize that the speed of the reforms may take slower than they had expected. And that's at least a view coming from JP Morgan analysts. And you can see somewhat of a lackluster response from the investor community. In the fact that the benchmark cost be dropped about 1% uh, this week after the announcement on Monday. And the government appears to understand that there are concerns uh, that this program may, be, may lose momentum after the April parliamentary elections. And that might be why officials at the Financial Services Commission emphasize that this program is a long-term project. And for the program to have peace, however, um, South Korea might need more forceful enforcement measures than Japan because of the powerful influence of the Taebo families uh, that Japan doesn't that doesn't really don't really exist in Japan. And Japan was able to change the behaviors of their listed companies with the Tokyo Stock Exchange's measures, uh, famous, famously known as naming and shaming. But Japan also doesn't have such a powerful presence of founding families in major companies like South Korea does. So the, the officials might need more forceful measures uh, to make the program more effective in South Korea. I see. So the early signs haven't been uh, too encouraging. Still, how do you think companies are going to respond now? Have we had any uh, signs from the companies themselves about what they're going to do? So I think it's still really, really early to tell whether the companies are coming up with their own voluntary measures already. They are still in the wait and see mode, and uh, they will probably be be waiting until they hear the final guidelines that will serve as a template uh, for their voluntary measures uh, later this year. So it might still be very early to tell. Okay, so too early to tell, but we will see in the long term if there are tangible results from this plan. In the meantime, we'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to reporter Yu Gyeong from Bloomberg. Thank you once again for your time. Thanks so much for having me today. Come to our Friday feature now, Movie Spotlights, where our film critics give their recommendations on what to look out for this weekend at the Korean box office and online. And joining me in the studio this week, first we have Jason Beshevace. Jason, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, hello, Jango, great to be here. And we have Darcy Paquette with us as well. Hello to you, Darcy. Hi. 
Okay, so Darcy, we begin with your recommendation this week, and it's a Korean film that is shaping up to be a force at the box office at the moment, which is uh, very welcome news indeed for the industry. It's called X Humor. The title in Korean is Pamyo. Darcy, can you tell us more about it? Sure. Uh, this is a new occult horror film, and it premiered in mid-February at the Berlin International Film Festival in the Forum section. And it's now in local theaters. So the director is named Zhang Jiehen. Some people might remember his debut film, which was called Savaha, The Sixth Finger. And that opened in 2019 before the pandemic. And it it did fairly well, although not to the extent of this, his second film. Mm. Uh, Exuma has a fairly starry cast, I would say, with Chaemin Sheik, the famous Shemin Cheek in the leading role together with Kim Goon and Yu Hae-jin and Lee Do-hyun from Sweet Home and the Glory. Um, I mean, that being said, it's not, I wouldn't call it a star-driven movie. Mm. Like the stars add a lot to the film, but uh, it's really kind of the the genre itself. And then, uh, I mean, good word of mouth. People have been watching the film and talking about it, and that seems to have been contributing to its strong performance at the box office. Interesting. So can you summarize the story for us? Yes. So there are four main characters and, you know, they work as either kind of shamans or kind of experts in the art of feng shui and, um, or, and an undertaker. And so they sometimes come together to work on these particularly kind of complicated or, and or lucrative jobs, uh, usually involving digging up a grave and, you know, reburying the body in a more uh, favorable position. Uh, and this, you know, solves the the problem that, you know, the family may be facing. Uh, as the film opens, they're contacted by this really rich Korean family living in L.A. And they're, you know, desperately concerned about this newborn baby who, you know, seems to be under the influence of some kind of dark spirit or something. Uh, and it turns out that it's not just the baby, that it seems to be something that different members of the family are dealing with. Mm. Uh, and so they trace it back to the grandfather's gravesite in Kangwon province. Um, and they say, you know, it needs to be exhumed. Uh, the grandfather needs to be reburied. Although actually, uh, you know, the father of the baby insists that they not open the coffin, that they simply take it out of the ground, uh, immediately cremate it. Uh, and, you know, all of this is kind of... Um, you know, it's a little bit hard to understand <laughs> exactly why they shouldn't open the coffin and, and everything else. But they quickly realize once they get near the grave that, you know, this is no ordinary gravesite. that digging it up involves a certain amount of risk. And it turns out that it's much more dangerous than oh, we yeah. ever well, could have well, imagined. It sounds very <laughs> ominous. But yes, it's tapping into this fairly uh, hot topic that's been uh, seen in films and recently quite a few films about shamanism, I think, in the last uh, three or four years or so. But yes, it sounds very creepy. So what did you make of it? Does it live up to uh, the box office hype? Yeah, I mean, I went in with really high expectations and I I loved the film. It was really great. Um, you know, it's it's one of these films that controls the atmosphere really well. And, um, you know, I think we can characterize it as a horror film, but there's none, I mean, there are no jump scares. It's not a film that kind of jumps out to scare you and it doesn't need to because the imagery itself is... Uh, is so powerful and mm. then you know it builds up its story in a slow but gradual way so that it really pulls you in and yeah and it's not simply i don't know i mean there i don't want to 
give too much away about yeah. sure, you sure. know the, the direction that the plot takes but it you know it gives you things to think about and you know the different ways to analyze you know what the meaning of these events in the film could be but uh but even just on a straight genre level like it uh, it's one of the better made thrillers horror films of recent years mm. um you know i uh, i hesitate to compare it to the wailing because i think the wailing is probably i mean i think it's one of the best korean films of the past 10 years and um you know this film it reminded me of that in certain parts um it's maybe a shade below that in terms of what it's able to accomplish but but nonetheless i was just really excited to see the film uh, the cast really adds a lot it's a great cast mm. uh, there are other characters as well beyond these four main characters but uh yeah it's just it's a really well told story i mean you uh, it's exciting to see something like this pulled off so well. All right, so you had high expectations. It seems the film met them. Uh, Jason, I know you caught this as well. Did it work for you too? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was fortunate to see it at the, the movie premiere here in Seoul. And uh, yeah, it came out buzzing. It's just uh, th- there's a lot in the film that's uh, really worth kind of reflecting on and examining uh it's, it's trying very hard not to say, <laughs> don't say too, too much more and, and don't don't read, read any reviews because already I, I had dinner with someone and they were talking about they hadn't even seen the film they knew partly what the film was about mm. um so just just going cold uh, it's i mean the, the visuals are fantastic the sound actually is superb mm. it, it, the, the sounds um kind of yeah design is it's it's it works really really well and there are these kind of set pieces in the film that are just they're just great you know uh they're they're so much fun i mean it is it is terrifying and unsettling but at the same time it's 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 a a genre movie that's clearly been the director is clearly been influenced by a whole number a whole array of films both here in korea and elsewhere and i you know he clearly has a an appetite uh, for cinema, and that's reflected in the movie. And just to just to hear people talking about the film in a really enthusiastic way is really encouraging. And um, yeah, it's doing fantastic. And yeah, long may that continue. It's it's a it's a really great film. It's one of the best Korean films of certainly of this genre in recent times. Uh, and inevitable comparisons to The Wailing, but it's also a very different film to mm. The Wailing. So. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I want to go and watch it again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's like, how far will it go at this point? You know, and it, I think it'll go pretty far because word of mouth is just really, really strong. Sure, your eyes lit up like a child when you're yeah, talking well, about it. Yeah, I was like it. a child coming out of the cinema. I was like, I, you know, I, I, I was lucky to go to the movie premiere and I stayed out really late, partly because I was so excited. <laughs> and I got home and I wasn't tired. I was like, it's like 7 a.m. I can carry on the whole day. Right. But a part of that buzz at the moment is because this film has been doing so well at the box office, right? Uh, after the success of 12, 12 the day yeah. at the end of last year, uh, we were wondering what the next hit would be because the film industry has been in such a difficult place in the last couple of years past the pandemic. So could this be a sign that the industry is really turning a corner now, Darcy, especially because, to be honest, I guess this wasn't expected to be as big a hit as it has been, right? Yeah, I mean, for me, this is a real point of optimism. And yeah. I haven't felt this optimistic, optimistic since the start of the pandemic. Uh, you know, in the case of, you know, 1212 The Day, Soul Spring, I mean, that, um, when it happened, it was really exciting to see the film doing so well. But, um, you know, on the other hand, you know, it was very much the type of thing that could have been a one-off. And 
Um, you know, people were talking about it and they were going to see it, but you still didn't get the sense that the, the industry had fully recovered yet. Um, but, you know, this film, it wasn't, you know, although word of mouth is really strong, it isn't the case of a film that kind of started slowly and then gradually picked up word of mouth. Uh, the audience caught on really quickly that this was going to be good. And from the first you know, day of its release, it's doing really, really well. And I mean, that's a really encouraging sign. You know, this is uh, the type of film that, um, you know, prior to the pandemic too, the, you know, it would do well. Uh, you could expect it to do well, but, um, you know, to see this level of excitement mm. for a film of this type is something that we haven't seen in quite a few years. And, you know, this comes on the heels of other encouraging news. There, um, I don't know, I mean, the, the theater chain CGV finally turned a profit in 2023, uh, which is a good sign. Uh, there have been other, you know, films like, um, you know, Citizen of a Kind. It wasn't a huge box office hit, but that's a film that was, uh, it was a word of mouth hit in the sense that it started small and then continued to, to do quite strongly and sure. accumulate some admissions. And also so, the same studio as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, basically, I think that, uh, I mean, the feeling I get, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too optimistic, but my, the feeling I get is that the film industry is starting to, to win back some viewers who, uh, you know, had been at home, mostly just focused on Netflix, and now they're, sure. they're paying more sure. attention to what's in the theatres. Jason, let me give you time for your two cents on this as well, very briefly. Yeah, I think it's possibly turned a corner. Uh, it was really telling that the figures for Sunday were higher than Saturday. Mm. On its first weekend. Mm, interesting. So, um, yeah, so it's it's absolutely very, very encouraging. I don't, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but, um, yeah, clearly this is connecting. It did remind me of The Wailing. The Wailing generated a lot of kind of conversations after sure. that and that this is doing uh, a similar thing. So, yeah, good news. Well, I guess it shows that there's still an audience out there if the right film comes along. And currently it seems to be uh, ex-humor. Darcy's recommendation this week. OK, let's uh, turn to your recommendation now, Jason. <laughs> and it's a major Hollywood release. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so let's try and get through this quickly. It's oh, the yeah. sci-fi oh, epic Dune Part 2 by Denis Villeneuve. The first film performed quite better than uh, expected when it was released in theatres. So there was much anticipation for the sequel as well. Jason, can you set up for us? Yeah, so basically, uh, when it was released in theatres uh, a few years ago, it was day and date release, so available on Warner Bros. streaming platform, much to the outrage of leading filmmakers, including Christopher Nolan and Denis Villeneuve. So now we've got this film, this, uh, part two, which actually hadn't been greenlit until the success of the first one. Uh, now it's just in, well, it's now in cinemas. So it's based, of course, on Frank Herbert's uh, 1965 novel. Uh, the first part essentially basically sets up the or develops the leading character and the events that spark off what happens in part two. Paul, of course, played by Timothy Chalamet, uh, he arrives on the dangerous planet of Arrakis to ensure the survival of his people after his father accepts accepts rather stewardship of the planet, and uh, he is he's killed. Uh, and so Paul is very, very angry. I'm, I'm oversimplifying the plot here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, and so you've got these huge kind of uh, sandworms that he, he kind of has to contend with. And uh, But yeah, he's kind of inflicting revenge on those who killed his father. And to do that, he must be accepted by this group of people known as the uh, Fremen as he joins them to fight uh, yeah, the Harkonnens led by this nefarious character called Baron. Uh, and so, yeah, he basically has to navigate all these different kind of challenges okay. and then he falls in love. And um, yeah, and so it's, I mean, it's an interesting movie. I, I saw it in IMAX. Uh, it's uh, very visually, very, very spectacular. 
amazing cast. You've got, uh, of course, as I mentioned, Timothy Chalamet. You've also got Austin Butler, Rebecca Ferguson, Javier Bardem, Christopher Walken, uh, and yeah, a whole number of others. And uh, mm. Denny Villeneuve, of course, is known for films such as Prisoners, Sicario, Arrivals, Blade Runner. Uh, 2049 and uh, I see him as almost like a young younger kind of release guy he doesn't often although right. he did write uh, co-write these films but he often doesn't write them um, and he's, he's he's one of you know Hollywood's leading filmmakers he, you know his craftsmanship is, is you know is superb right and uh, yeah so um, was it good then did you enjoy it yeah no it's great yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what I liked about it is it kind of combines I mean on one hand it feels very traditional obviously the novel is you know, it's it's quite a, it's a quite an old novel, and it feels, in a sense, a film that would attract older men, especially here in Korea. That was true of the first film. Um, but on the other hand, you know, with the casting, it feels you know contemporary in its execution. Um, visually, it's just truly spectacular. You've got these these sandwor- uh, sandworms, ginormous things, and you know, one of the missions, one of the things that this Paul character has to do is ride on them. He has to be able to kind of not get eaten and ride these these worms and that that whole sequence is just truly phenomenal you know on mm. these IMAX screens. one thing i would note though is if you are going to watch this i wouldn't watch it on a conventional screen it's, it's something that has to be seen on the biggest screen possible okay. with the best sound system possible sure. uh i think it, you, you just you're, just, you're only getting half the movie um and so i see premium formats selling really well for this film it kind of might do what happened with oppenheimer in that it didn't perform you know, really well overall because everyone was just waiting to get those premium format tickets mm. and there aren't enough IMAX screens in Korea. All right, I so see. I, I see a kind of repeat of that. Do you need to watch the first film as well to really enjoy yeah, the second yeah, film? Yeah, you do. You can't really watch the second one okay. without watching it. Well, you could do, but I watched the first one with my son and <laughs> that was an interesting experience because it's quite a heavy movie. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, no, it's it's definitely... Can I watch I watched on my... You know, the first one at home, and I was like, you know, it's just not the same. You know, it's one of those films you have to kind of go to the cinema. And that's the beauty of going to cinema is that you, you know, especially a big IMAX screen, you're seeing sure. it in its full glory. And I, I, I strongly, strongly suggest that you go and see it on a, a big IMAX screen, if at all possible. Well, Darcy, I understand that you couldn't catch this film before our recording today. But uh, you did see the first June, so are you keen to check out the second part as well? Has Jason convinced you to watch it on an IMAX like he's uh, saying that we should? Yeah, I mean, I'm almost just off the plane from the US, but on the flight back, I rewatched Dune 1 on the tiny screen. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, uh, I mean, I read the novel as a kid. I I really did like the first one. Mm. I know that there are people who don't like it as much, but for me, it was just... This one's good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a cinematic event back when I watched it in the theater in 2021, and I'm so excited about well, number two. You mentioned cinematic event. I mean, this is even more so. You know, it's I, I say there's more character development in the first film, more execution in the second. Okay, that's where we'll leave it. Darcy, Jason, thank you for your recommendations as always. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah. you too. Take care. And that's our show for today. Join us again on Monday as we continue to bring you the latest news, views and reviews from Korea. Till then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wo, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.